podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to a new Wagon Wheel podcast. If you happen to be watching this on YouTube, if we ever get around to putting it up, you might see I'm not in my normal spot, so I might sound different. As I have my travel microphone with me, and we're filming this off our, our, my computer rather than where we would usually be recording it with a big expensive camera and lens. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm on holidays, so everything's a little bit different. So sorry if I was a little bit late and some of you are waiting to come on a little bit earlier. But as usual, you know, huge thanks to everyone on Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon um, and also our sponsors, uh, Manscaped. Remember, you can get 20% off with Manscaped using the code all one word red inca, and that's free worldwide shipping. And then you can shave your balls or someone else's balls or, I don't know, just keep the item. Just support the podcast, whatever you'd like. Also, Bodyline T-shirts, uh, which I do have some Bodyline T-shirts with me away on holiday at the moment, but they're in the other room. But they've got some new T-shirts. They, they put them up on Instagram. In fact, so you can follow Bodyline T-shirts on Instagram and uh, you can see their excellent work. But most of all, thanks to the Patreon people because they obviously uh, pay to have this podcast exist. So huge shout out to all of them and thank you very, very much. And because of that, they get to ask the questions first. So Ian's asked, the IPL auction saw some very different tactics. Some teams went heavy on day one and some had a bigger war chest left. Rajasthan bought a handful of players at the very last minute. Which approach got the best value, do you think? Well, value, probably, Rajasthan's approach. I thought what they tried to do was after, I think they they pinned their hopes a little bit too much to overseas players in previous drafts, and obviously they had problems with injuries and availability and all those sorts of problems, and it looked to me like they went in a different direction for this particular draft, and they went local. I always think that's the best option uh, because there's always overseas players to fill up your eight slots with who are good right? Um, there might be key overseas players that you want to be involved with. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, there are other teams who wanted very big name players. Who was it? It was at Lucknow or Gujarat. One of the new franchises spent, you know, almost all their money on what you would think is going to be their main 11 players. You get a couple of injuries there and you're in all sorts of trouble. Um, also, I think with the, with the auctions and the drafts in these sorts of leagues, you should really be trying to build players that you can bring back. So, you know, you, you really want to invest in players, as I said, you know, on some of the other videos I've done before, between the ages of really 22 to 28. Um, so you have a chance to re-sign them going ahead into the future. Um, and if you're going, you know, too young or too old, uh, I think you're spending a lot of money on players who maybe aren't as worthwhile for you. Uh, but thanks for that, Ian. Uh, Jimmit says, oh, he says nothing because I moved the question away. Seeing India's defeats at the hands of New Zealand, chances of... Even a, uh, a place in the semi-final for the upcoming uh, ODI World Cup look bleak. Is there a quick fix according to you? Yeah, I, I don't have any particular problem, Jim, with the um, with the Indian ODI side. Uh, I can certainly understand what you're saying. I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't problems, but I'm not. I'm not sitting there looking at their team, thinking this is kind of the end for them or anything like that. So um, I still think they're a decent side. But yeah, I think they're. A, I think they're going to go away from the more conservative style as it hasn't worked for them. Uh, I think they're going to try and work out how to take wickets in the power play a little bit more. I think we might see slightly more attacking from them with the ball because I think that was when they were probably at their best. Um, and uh, we might see a few of those sorts of other sorts of players like, you know, Rishabh Pant, we, we saw him being used to open in one game. Pretty sure might be someone else that they might have a look at. But I think, 
basically they'll go with a similar kind of lineup where they believe they can make between 270 and 350 in most games. And, but I think they might just try and attack a little bit more with their bowlers. Well, that would be my guess. Um, I haven't done that much research into it. I actually find the next World Cup really interesting because everyone sort of um, – there aren't many teams where I'm like, oh, they're one-day teams, good. They're just going to continue to improve from here. AB says <clears> – <throat> Is there an argument to be made that Rashid Khan is the most overpaid player in this auction cycle in absolute terms? Zampa, Kaz Ahmed, Adil Rashid, as the next tier of overseas leggies, are all less good with the bat and ball, but not wildly so. No, I think they are. I don't think Rashid... I think Rashid Khan is one of the closest things to an absolute certain bet. And I also think uh, when you factor in his batting, his bowling, his fielding, uh, leadership, the amount of experience that he has... Uh, the fact he can bowl in any part of the game at any time uh, and the fact that you don't have to worry about those four overs, I, I think there just aren't that many players like that. So I don't think he's um, uh, he's he's a waste there. I don't. If, if, I, I know you're comparing him to other overseas leggies or even local leggies. There just is no comparison. There is no other Rashid Khan. There is no other player who teams fear as much as him. Um, you only have to look at the Afghanistani uh, game plan. Like they essentially they save him for the last ten overs um, on purpose, which you can't do with any other league spinner in the world. Every game because uh, he's just that much better than everyone else. So I can see what you're saying, but no, I don't think that. Um, oh, I actually think that some of the other league spinners were undervalued. I think Ravi Bishoy didn't go for enough money, and I think Chahal didn't go for enough money. Um, so if anything, I think they're undervalued. I don't think that uh, Rashid Khan is particularly overvalued. I don't. I think when you've got a player like Rashid Khan or Jasprit Bumrah um, uh, or AB De Villiers, they are just such absolute locks that it is worth paying you know all the money for them. Animal says, is there a case for IPL teams having really low purse for auction as a result and players being underpaid in the IPL? As expected, the price for the next five-year cycle of IPL rights is around four to five billion. What should the budget of teams be, according to you? Is there a case for IPL teams having really low purse for auction as a result of players being underpaid? Uh, I'm not really sure what you completely mean by that, Amol. Um, uh, I, I think that the players... I think the players are underpaid in the OPL, and I think they're tragically underpaid when you look at what the rights packages are going for. It'd be interesting to see if that is ever changed going ahead into the future. Um, uh, you know, you're talking about, I think maybe the NBA and Cricket Australia probably slightly overpay their players at times. Like, what are they up to, 45 50% in some of those leagues? Um, it probably should be slightly less than that, only because you, you probably want money in, into development and uh, and other things. Um uh, that makes it harder for some of those leagues at times to be able to do. But, yeah, I think the players are definitely um, underpaid in the IPL as, as it currently stands. I don't think we really – I don't think there's any reason for any IPL players really to be on less than, you know, $200,000 just because of the league and how much it's paid and how many players there are. Um And if we're going to have, you know, development contracts and all sorts of other things, that's all – all well and good, but realistically, this league is worth billions and billions of dollars, and there are a lot of players who really aren't getting paid that much. And you know, the top end players aren't getting paid as much as they probably should be as well. Now, you can factor in the fact they don't play that many games, which I think is very fair. But when you look at the TV rights, it doesn't really it doesn't really seem to matter with that, does it? So, um, yeah, I think I hope I got your question right there, Emil. Uh, Park says, "How does something like your bowling ball work in IPL uh, work in auction?" Um, 
Uh, I probably wouldn't use it for an auction. Uh, I wasn't really using my IPL bo- uh, board for uh, as an auction thing. I was really looking at the overall talent. The auction is so spasmodic in the way that it works, obviously. Um, so what I'm really, what I was really trying to do in that particular situation is show different things. Uh, we know that different auction cycles, when you come out in the auction, I, I really don't think the auction is run particularly well. Um, I think that, uh, and it's hard as well. Um, but 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 I really don't think it's particularly run that well. I think you could see there were players who were overlooked uh, early on in the auction who ended up going for decent money. So I think Matthew Wade is probably a fairly uh, a good example of that because at the time teams didn't really think that they needed him. But then you know coming back to that later, obviously things had changed. If he went early in the auction, my guess is he would have gone. Well, he probably you know we wouldn't have gone. But if he had an open end um, price. Um, he would have gone for far lower. Um, and so I think the auction is there. But what I'm trying to look at really with the big board is just looking at the overall talent, who are the best players in each individual position. Um, and so the auction comes up with something very different. Um, but there's two reasons I didn't do it. One, I just wanted to look at the talent pool because uh, this was a mega auction. Uh, and two, Park, I specifically didn't want to put out uh, how I would do an auction because teams can pay me for that if they if they want that. And I still think a lot of them do it wrong based on having watched this auction. Christopher says, you come across as totally neutral. I'm wearing grey today. Um, Is this the case or do you support Australia? And either way, how do you get used to it or are you able to hide? Oh, sorry. Probably not supposed to happen, was it? Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a cricket fan before I'm an Australian cricket fan. Uh, I mean, I like lots of teams and lots of players and lots of coaches and, you know, lot, you know, I've worked for teams, right? So obviously I want St. Lucia to do well in Scotland, Melbourne Stars. Um, you know, you had that sort of bias. Plus you have bias towards your friends. You know, I have friends playing for cricket teams and coaching cricket teams and managing cricket teams and, you know, CEOs of cricket teams, right? So you have these different um, emotions involved with all that but i think for me i just like the cricket comes first anyway so yeah occasionally i'll get an angry message from a friend (laughs) um and occasionally i'm just like i I always think that especially with the australian team i'm probably more harsh on them than i am on other teams because i know that kind of what they could do and that they don't do um so that probably comes out a little bit in the way that i uh, i look into all these sorts of things but I think, you know, deep down when it, when it comes down to it, I just look at cricket. Um, and I don't know if that's a, you know, I think that's a skill I've always had. Um, but I think during during uh, Cricket with Balls era, I probably had to play up being a fan more than I probably um, necessarily am. I love looking at cricket. And so I do look at these things maybe completely different to other people. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's not, I don't think it's something I've necessarily worked on. Um, uh, I get really passionate about really weird things in cricket over and over again. And it's not always my team doing well or not doing well. I love it watching Australia win, um, but uh, it doesn't really change me or my thought processes that much. Um, You know, I probably said that Australia fluked the World Cup win uh, recently more than anyone else alive. And I'm Australian and I'm sure it bothers some Australians. Duncan says the big bash is in decline. Peaked in 2016-2017 with 30k average crowd, then went to 26, 20, 18, and 8. Obviously, that's with the pandemic, as you say, Duncan. Should they reduce the schedule? What would you do to try and return it to its glory? Uh, I think you're worrying about crowds. They don't care about crowds. 
crowds are not that important. Uh, they're always going to get people in after the pandemic. They're still going to be looking at fifteen, you know, to twenty thousand, as you said. Uh, the, cr- crowds don't pay pay for things. Uh, TV uh, rights packages, deals, streaming, all that sort of stuff pays for things. That would be the bigger concern. I would have thought that the TV ratings are slightly down, but. Like, let's say, and, and I don't have any of the TV numbers in front of me, but let's say the average viewership was half a million people before per game and you've gone up 30% of games and the viewership's gone to 350 to 400,000. They're going to be working out if they've still got more people watching altogether um, and they have their product on for longer and their advertisers are more happy. Uh, the actual crowd, the crowds don't pay that much to go to the Big Bash anyway. Um, it's not as important as, as you would think. Really, cricket hasn't been a crowd run sport probably since cable TV came along, and that's pretty much the case with all sports around the world, and Big Bash is absolutely no different. Big Bash is a TV product. Um, So TV is what they're going to be more worried about. There's also been a dip in the TV numbers, but I think for them they would be much more worried, uh, you know, uh, having spoken to them uh, personally, if if the TV numbers were to suddenly uh, fall from a crater. And they obviously have dipped as well. But they're looking at overall people looking over the whole year, not per game. And I think a lot of people look at per game. doesn't doesn't really matter. There are a lot of Tuesday night NBA games that you can only watch if you're streaming on a local server, right? It doesn't – sorry, on, 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 their, on their app, I should say, or, you know, um, if you paid for it on some specific random, uh, uh, you know, um, cable TV platform – that's not what matters. What matters is the overall numbers and how these sorts of things work. Um, so it's a little bit different than that. And then, oh, oh, sorry. A couple more here. Satchmo says, my friends in Trinidad believe that Brian Lara is a better batter than Viv Richards. I'm shocked that people in Trinidad think that Brian Lara was a better batter than Viv Richards. He's not from Trinidad. Uh, he had a wider, wider range of um, shots outside off. I think that's probably fair. Whereas Viv was the master blaster who favoured the leg side so much that he often played across his front pad. No, he always played across his front pad. That was what Viv Richards did. Lara also mastered Warden Murally at various times, um, and Viv never faced them in test. Well, I, I don't think you can really compare the two. Um, if one didn't face them, um, uh, I think from the era they played in, Viv Richards probably, trying to think back, I would have thought that, I think they would have both been about as dominant as each other. You probably have to look at runs above average metric uh, to really have a look at, at who was much better in their era than the other player. Uh, I don't think Vivra just playing across his pad is not particularly a problem because in his era, he got away with it, right? He may not get away with that in the DRS era. Um, but we also know that Lara struggled when bowlers, especially taller bowlers, came around the wicket to him early on in his innings. In the analysis era, he'd have to go up against that a lot more. So that would probably um, negate his effectiveness. Also, the way that Lara played spin wouldn't exist under DRS anymore, right? Um, he would have to change the way he played against spin, especially against Murali. Murali would much rather play against him. So, look, I think you have to look at them in their particular eras. You'd have to look at runs above average. My guess is they'd probably be fairly similar. Uh, uh Lara uh, played a little bit in the 90s, which was obviously a bit of a low era. Well, not a a little bit in the 90s. He played a lot in the 90s, which was a lower era for batting. But he also played in the 2000s, which were a brilliant era for batting. Uh, Viv Richards probably never had a good era for batting that he played in. Um, Both absolute guns. Uh, I I would have thought that Viv was probably slightly better against pace and um, Lara slightly better against seam. Uh, Sorry, against spin. Um, that's just having based on watching them, though. That's not, that, you know, that's we, I don't think we have those numbers particularly 
for um, Richards, although I'm, I'm sure that um, someone like Charles Davis might be able to fill that in, that one in for us. But they're both fantastic cricketers. Um, but, yeah, when, when you start the thing with someone from Trinidad believes that Brian Lara was better than someone else, that kind of answers that question. <laughs> Jake says, when India were knocked out of the World T20 early, I saw some people speculate that the fact that players only play IPL doesn't help. Do you think there's some truth in that? Uh, if so, do you think the BCCI will ever soften their stance about Indian players? Uh, being IPL exclusive. Uh, yeah, I think it is an issue. I don't think it's like the major issue. I don't think, um, I think there were probably bigger problems uh, when it comes to that sort of thing. But I don't think you can deny the fact that there are a lot of players getting a very well-rounded T20 experience. Uh, and, and you don't learn that much T20 cricket playing from your, your nation. Your nation doesn't play that much, right? So playing in one competition, often in one uh, location or in two, if you count the UAE, doesn't help as much, does it? Like it's not rounding out those players' games as much as some of the other players who are on the circuit. Um, that said, being in the IPL every year gives you experience of the coaches, of the professionalism, uh, learning from the other star players. So there's obviously strengths and weaknesses in it. But I think if India was trying to produce the best T20 players available to them, they wouldn't do that. You hear a similar thing with the Premier League and English footballers, don't you? So it's not it's not like this is a new thing. Um, you also see, even, even within the NBA, you know, you see that where NBA basketball is obviously different to, you know, um, uh, FIBA basketball or, or, you know, world basketball. And you see sometimes the NBA players really have trouble going back to that sort of more European or Asian style of basketball or African style of basketball sometimes, whereas the, the players who've played in the NBA who grew up in Australia and Africa and Europe, they're a bit more experienced uh, with that. So that that's a – I think that's a fairly normal thing as well. That's not what the IPL is set up for, though, is it? It's not set up for the um, uh, Indian players to be the best at T20 cricket. It's set up for the IPL to be the best. Um, and so uh, that's where we are, I think, with that. All right. Oh, sorry. And then Ray says, on paper, which IPL team has the strongest squad? Uh, who's your pick of the top three sides? Look, I haven't gone through it yet, Ray, sadly. Um, so I can't really answer your question there. My memory is that the one that impressed me the most was maybe Delhi from a four-year cycle perspective. I don't think that necessarily means that they have the best team from next year. Um Obviously, uh, there's a few teams where I kind of felt that way. But I could be completely wrong on this, and I'll probably have to do a power rankings before the season starts. But off the top of my head, I felt that Delhi was a slightly stronger one. Obviously, Chennai... It, it's, it's One of the things that's really hard is because it's gone from eight to ten teams, so every team looks weaker. So I actually I found that a little bit tricky um, uh, for myself. But um, thanks so much for all the Patreon people. And we've got Siddharth, who every week asks a question, and every week we have all sorts of problems getting him on. But let's see if we can get him on. Siddharth, are you there? Yeah. No. Oh, it's come straight through. Yeah, first question is a bit, it, 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 it's a long question. Uh, it is that, so I was okay. talking about, you know, that all this uh, mental strength and all these things that the players talk about. And I was thinking there must be mm-hmm. some truth into it because, you know, the international players just keep going on and on and on about it. But then I thought about it a little more and uh, I told myself maybe it's the tactic that they use to keep the audience engaged or something. But thinking a bit too deeply into it, I thought that most of the media people are either ex-international cricketers or cult-international. And international cricketers are very talented. 
And guess what? Talented people need to get most out of their potential, grit, and determination, and mental strength. So, like Ricky Ponting went on and on about this summer. Like he gave his experience as well when he came to the team. That mental strength and getting his mental game right really made him、uh, one of the best players in the world. But he was pretty bloody talented when he came in. And yeah, I mean, many said that the boys from India were like they tried really hard, and the people from England they didn't try hard. You can't compare that because if you look at Shub,、uh, if you look at both the Shubman Gill is a、mm-hmm. team pro, a team prodigy who debuted for India at the age of nineteen and had has really solid technique. And Rory Burns is first class reject who was ignored for six years by his own、uh, county and was taken to a team. When literally no one else in the country was making any runs at the top of the order, or、mm-hmm. so you can't really say that one tried really hard and other than so is it? It's great determination, mental strength. All this stuff is something that talented people need, or just to get the most out of it. Because sometimes you underestimate how differently two people see a ball coming down at eighty-five miles an hour. Like A.P. De Villiers sees a ball coming down. And 85 miles an hour, much, much differently than、uh, maybe probably a club cricketer, but even some of the lower tier international cricketers. So yeah, just your is it does really make sense?、Uh, yeah, no, no. I mean, I mean, you, you're right. So, so the the interesting thing is that I'll t- tell you two players that I was always told didn't have very good mental strength. It was Elby Morkel and Morne Morkel, right? And I've been told that Elby Morkel doesn't handle pressure, and Morne Morkel can't. Think through、um, things very well, right? That that was what I was always told. Morne Morkel did he end up with three hundred Test wickets?、Um, Elby Walker won two IPLs off the top of my head. I think I've got those numbers right.、Um, they were obviously absolutely stunning cricket athletes.、Uh, Elby Morkel in the all round sense, and Morne Morkel in the six foot seven sense. I can bowl ninety miles an hour, right? Uh, were they incredibly mentally strong people? I don't know, right? Were they? Did they combust under pressure? I probably doubt it.、Um, but they probably what they didn't have is what they had was a huge advantage over most cricketers in that what they did wasn't very easily to replicate. Like Morne,、uh, Albi Morkel could bowl what eighty eighty five mile an hour, big hooping outswingers, and he could hit sixes at will. Morne Morkel could bowl a length that most people can't hit when you bowl at eighty miles an hour, and he could bowl that at ninety miles an hour. Right? That seems to me to be far more important than being mentally strong. You could be the most mentally strong person I've ever met, right? But if you're not very good at cricket, that doesn't matter. What happens at the professional level is that there are a lot of people who are very preternaturally talented, like Alby and Morne, and there is a difference between those sorts of cricketers. And cricketers who are who are able to get the most out of themselves, and so I think that if you look at if you look at Ricky Ponting, if you look at Michael Jordan,、uh, Tiger Woods,、um, uh, you know those those sorts of incredible、uh, athletes, they probably have the preternatural physical skills, but they also then have the incredible ultra competitiveness, or you know maybe it's steel, or maybe it's calm under composure, like you know Emma Stoney, or whatever whatever that may be, right? All those things are really important. The problem is that those things are not particularly measurable. And and so what you get you, you, you get this with leadership all the time, right? 
the leaders who are really loud and give the big speeches are thought of as great leaders. And the leaders who get the job done behind the scenes and, and come up with a really good um, situation for everyone but don't aren't particularly good at press conferences don't get the same amount of credit. And it's exactly the same with mental strength. You, you, you look for one thing that you really respect and I look for one thing I really respect and that person is mentally strong and tough and gritty and that other person isn't. Um, and, and everyone has their own, like, if you've ever met anyone who's, like, working class or middle class, like, middle class people and even the one percenters, um, they still have their hurdles to overcome. As you said, it's, if you're, Rory Burns comes from such a better cricketing background than so many players uh, around the world, even in Australia and South Africa, right? You know, as far as his father was a coach and he had access to really good schools and he played cricket in Surrey and have all these different things. But as you said, he was also completely overlooked. Surrey never really wanted him. He really struggled to make him a mark. Uh, England didn't want him, all those sorts of things. So he still needed grit, despite the fact that he comes from a privileged cricket background, right? That that sort of mentally strong thing is, it. it a lot of it is is seen in, in um, hindsight. And a lot of it com- comes from what we are looking for individually. So you're right. It, there, there's absolutely no doubt that mental strength plays a, a part in this, but so does how much does someone practice and how smart someone practices, right? So so I, I remember hearing a basketballer talk about this recently. He said that when he got to the NBA, he was shocked by how many players didn't train that hard. And I I find this all the time in cricket. Like um, I was talking to a professional cricketer recently and I was we, we were talking about it and, and he said, that's because we don't train very hard. And I was like, I've never heard one, you know, a cricketer admit that. And he said, we don't. Let we don't train that hard. So when you see someone who does, it really, really sticks out. And I think uh, whether it's mental strength, whether it's uh, professionalism, whether it's training, whether it's due diligence, whether it's whatever, all those different things, you could be really mentally strong, but you don't train very hard um, and you will struggle. And you can be really meant, you can be, you can be an absolute diligent trainer, but when you get out in the middle um, you don't have the ability to put everything t- together under under pressure or you don't have the game to be able to do that. The difference is that we can't measure a lot of those mental strength things. Um, you know, we're only getting to the point of recent times where we're really getting good at sort of maybe starting to qualify some of those things. But, you know, you read the top sort of clinical psychologists around the world and a lot of it's still kind of nonsense. <laughs> um, and so... And a lot of it is, as I said, you know, as someone who is seen as very strong in India will be seen as weak in Australia, and yet there'll be no difference. It's just the way that it comes across um, uh, visually, right? Uh, and that's a very hard thing to explain to people because that's not how we, we live our life, right? That's not how we think about these sorts of things. And, you know, how many great politicians in the world have gone absolutely nowhere in politics because they can't give a good speech, Right. Or, or they sweat too much when they're under a camera, which has nothing to do with how they handle pressure. It's that they might sweat a lot. <laughs> you know, there, there are very basic things. And, you know, that's what it comes down to. So that's why when I try and do my work, I'm trying to look at things that we can measure because a lot of that is just bullshit. It's, you know, to, to take it back to an Australian thing, it's the good bloke thing. Ah, oh, he's a good bloke. Why? Because you like him? You know, the amount of people I was told in my childhood were good blokes and actually beat their wife and probably were pedophiles is probably staggering, right? Uh, but he's the first guy to get the beer in. Um, and he makes sure that, you know, he makes sure he looks after his mates and he only picks, up, picks on them so much. A, a lot of this is just absolute horseshit bullshit, right? Um, 
And, uh, you know, unfortunately it becomes the narrative, I think, with certain people. And that's why I try and look at, well, why Mourne Morkel, you guys can call him soft and you can say that he wasn't a very smart cricketer, but he took a lot of wickets. And that's because he has a skill set that is exceptional. And he had the ability to bowl through pain. Um, you know, consistently, which is something else that you have to be able to do to be a, a, a international test bowler. I'm much more interested in that than I am probably many other things. Uh, can I ask my second question? Can you come back in later just because I'll let a couple of other people come in. Kyle, how you doing? Good, good. I love, love, loved your conversation with Jade Dareback. Oh, about oh, the, I really liked when you talked about the mental aspect of bowling at the death, the type of mentality, the type of person it takes to giving your best shot and win at least the game for your team. They reminded me a lot of baseball closers who are often yeah. with the game in a lot. And as a baseball fan knows, all closers are crazy. <laughs> and, but I was surprised what he said about the toll that death overs take on the body. I always felt just by watching that white ball bowling was less strenuous than test bowling yeah. just because of the amount. But he talked about how digging it in and the slow balls really took it out on him. Is that because of like a test level? Are guys like saving something in the tank? Are they going 80% a lot of the time? And at white ball, there's a leash. Or uh, is it just a different type of athlete that can go 100% for five days? No, I think, I think a lot of it is, a lot of test bowling is patience, right? So you're trying to get the ball in the right area. You're, you, you're basically, you're running through your mark. And you're trying to out, outlast the, uh, the batter at a certain point, but you're also not putting a lot of work on the ball, right? So bouncers take a lot out of test bowlers, but a general length ball, um, unless it's a really flat pitch and you're trying to bend your back a little bit harder to get something out of it, you're probably respecting the ball and you're respecting the pitch a little bit and you're putting the ball in the same area so your muscle memory is, is easier, right? It's not as hard a strain on your body. If you take that through to the death bowling, you're not bowling the same ball anytime. You have to be at 100% every delivery. Um, you're not. It's not about patience, right? It's like if you're. I remember um, Roddy Eswick, when you know when I worked at Solution, he was talking to the bowlers, and he said you have to earn your slower balls. And what he was saying is that what you really want to be able to do is you don't want to run in and he, he was putting it in two different ways. Um, the first one was the ball before your slower ball should be something special. Right, because you want to be able to when you have the slower ball, you want the difference between those two balls to be quite big in in pace variation, but in also what the ball does. Right, and the other one was that when you're actually bowling the slower ball, you can't think in your head, "I'm bowling bowling a slower ball." You have to bowl the slower ball with as much effort and physicality again as possible. Right, then if you look at just the very basic part of it, and you would know this from baseball. The, if when you're trying to put that amount of revs on a cricket ball to make it a slower ball, you're just using more of your body, right? You're using more of your arm, you know, uh, wrist, fingers, elbow, shoulder should have a lot more pressure on them from a slower ball than they would from a normal ball. Plus, you're also, you're probably, if um, have you played any cricket, Kyle? I don't think you have, have you? A couple times swinging a bat with some kids from college, but no. <laughs> so when you bowl off spin you basically, you're shutting your body off in a different direction. Does that make sense? So uh, you're, you're basically pivoting around your body, right? So if you're trying to do that at 90 miles an hour, you're putting extra stress on your body that wouldn't be there from running through in a test match, right? In a test match, you've sort of grooved your action to, to you know, you're coming through, you're running straight through. There will be stresses on you, obviously. 
when you're spinning the ball around, the, the shoulders, the chest, the back, uh, probably the way that you put the pressure on the leg is all different. The way that you're pivoting on your front leg is all different. So all of those things are putting extra stress on. And I think that's what Jade was trying to say. Um, and, and and so his slow ball was the, was a wrist spinning slow ball, so a back of the hand slow ball. So again, he's putting all these extra pressures on his body that even a spinner won't put on because he's doing it at, what, 50% quicker than a spinner, right? Or, or 40% quicker probably in his case um, than, than, than a top spinner. And so all that extra pressure, so uh, all those things come about it. And then there is no putting the ball in the right area. So sort of, so you have a stock ball in test cricket that you can fall back to. This is the ball I bowl in test cricket. And chances are, as the, if there's any help in the surface at all, or the batter's not completely set, at the very least, I'll be able to put this ball here and there won't be too much damage to me. Now, if you're, fa- if you're bowling to Victor Trumper or Viv Richards or, you know, uh, Keith Miller, they might take you on, right? They might, you know, Verinda Saywag, you don't have that ability. But with most batters, you have a chance where they're going to be like, well, that's a good ball in a good area, and that's where this guy likes to bowl. I won't play too much. So it's not so much that they're not putting in effort, but they're not putting in maximum effort on that particular ball. If you're bowling at the death, Verinda Saywag and Viv Richards and Victor Trumper are happening every ball, right? They're coming at you every ball. So if you are slightly off, and you can see it, it's actually sometimes easier to see with spinners, probably easier to see at the the game. Sometimes spinners in T20 cricket, they, they bowl up a little bit out of their hands. Whereas if you do that in, in T20 cricket, unless you're an absolute master spinner, uh, but I'm talking more here, they're sort of T20 type spinners. If the ball comes up out of your hand, it usually goes for four or six because that's basically what the batter is is watching for. So what you're talking about with T20 spin is that ability to drive every ball in. And that goes back to what Jade is talking about. You don't have to do that as a spinner in a test match. You can put a couple of balls in the right area and just be and be happy enough that you put them in the right area. And as long as you're not bowling to Rashad Punt or um, Adam Gilchrist, they won't be smacked out of the ground for six, right? If you're bowling at the death, that is a chance. So what what spinners are trying to do in T20 games is really drive the ball into the surface a lot more, which is why you see Sunil Narayan and and Rashid Khan bowl a lot shorter. And what T20 bowlers are trying to do is either bowling their fastest ball or their most accurate ball um, or their ball with the most revolutions. And all of those things take more out of you than bowling a long test spell. Uh, The only time that that's different is to go back to what we were talking about before is probably the guys who are bowling regular bounces. Um, so, you know, Neil, what Neil Wagner does is probably different, is, is different to anyone else, but most, or, or the odd Ben Stokes, Ben Stokes does it occasionally as well. Those really long spells where he just bowls short for like six or seven overs. That is probably a lot more like a T20 bowling at the death. But even then physically they, you'd have to hold yourself back. Otherwise you would, you know, ex- explode. Um, if you look at what T- Tamal Mills does at the at the end, that the short the sheer physicality of what he does at the crease, and he was much more like Jade Dernbeck, fast and then back of the hand slow balls. I just don't think you can keep that up for even even in one day. Is you probably have to pare that back a little bit. Um, what you're putting your body through. Because as you said, with the closers in baseball, you can just replace them, right? Whereas Jade Dernbeck knows he's going to have to bowl his. 10 overs or his four overs, he's going to have to bowl that many deliveries. So there always has to probably be a little bit of holding it back, whereas some baseball pitchers probably have the ability to know that there will be, I can have you know a little bit more replacement here, whereas Dernback's going, well, I'm going to have to bowl these 24 balls. Um, 
so it's slightly different in that particular case. But um, yeah, I think the phys- I don't think the physicality of it. I don't think the physicality of fast bowling is actually talked up enough because it's always sort of said in this joking way, partly because so many batters are commentators, right? And you get this sort of thing of, oh, yeah, you know, oh, poor big fellas. And, what, what, you know, eight times your, your, your weight is going through your front leg. Eight times your weight is going through your front leg, right? That's on a normal delivery. That's before we factor in everything else and how tired you might be at that point. It's a stunningly stupid um, idea to bowl fast. I could not, I could not, you know, uh, you know, when my, when my seven-year-old, um, he, he bowls pretty fast for a seven-year-old. And I keep thinking, yeah, maybe if you tried spin, though. <laughs> uh, my luck will probably, you know, rip his shoulder out bowling spin. But uh, I hope that answers what you're trying to get at there. It does. And it was a really good conversation. Cassa, quick follow-up. Just Yep, sure. Do bowlers tend to T20 versus test because of some natural skills or is it like, Talk about repeatable deliveries, and that's, as you might know, all baseball pitchers start as starters, and then when they mm. become professional, based on how violent their delivery is, how repeatable it is, or what their skills match to, they get kind of shifted, and that's because it's a fully professional system. That kind of gets decided for guys. Yeah. Cricket, it seems a lot more of a choose-your-own-path. Some guys want to specialize in C20. Some guys want to specialize in test. Is that more a skills-based, or is that more a mindset-based decision? I think there are players who do both at the moment in cricket, which probably won't happen in 20 or 30 years, but mostly it's still skills-based, right? So Chris Rogers might want to, and, and uh, you know, uh, Pajara might want to be T20 players, but they just don't have that within their their skills to be able to do that. And Harry Gurney, by the end, the, ball, the best ball that Harry Gurney has is a slow ball, right? So it doesn't matter how much he wants to play red ball cricket. So I think that that is very, very skill-based. But you might get players. So, so for instance, someone like Chris Lynn. I saw Chris Lynn play when he was young. I have absolutely no doubt that Chris Lynn is a test-level quality batter. Certainly against quick bowling. He might have struggled against the spinners a bit more. Um, but he had these skills to be able to do both. And by the time he specialized, he probably didn't have the skills to go back to test cricket, right? Um, which is another thing because the, you know, we get, we're getting towards a, posi- a a sport, which is a little bit more like the split between rugby league and rugby union, where there should always be a crossover and players should always be able to go back, but it's getting harder and harder to cross over between the two sports. So the, the basic physical skills still make sense. But if you talk to someone who's played rugby union, um, and goes on to play r- rugby league, they had to relearn certain things. And I think that if you let's, I'm trying to think of someone really specific here. Ah, Tamal Mills is a really good example of this. I still think that Tamal could come back and play test cricket. Physically, he'll tell me he cannot. But skills wise, I think there's absolutely nothing that would stop him from going off for 18 months and just working on it and getting really good at it and coming back and doing it. But it might take him those 18 months, right? And I think that's where, that's a tricky thing to be able to do. Now, in rugby league and rugby union, quite often it's because, you know, a particular. They've run their race in their own sport or they're just bored of their own sport and they're changing. And it usually doesn't take 18 months to be able to to be able to go between those two things and perfect them. Um, we're, and baseball's obviously slightly different because it's within the same sport, right? So you're still in the farm system, aren't you? So even if you stop being a starting pitcher, you end up being something else and you could end up going back to being a starting pitcher. Um, you're within that particular system, at the moment, cricket still has that. So Tamal Mills is still down in Sussex. And if he wanted to, he could say to one of the coaches, we can do this. How long do you think it will take me to get my body back ready for that? And they can go about it. 
once you're out of the system, which is the rugby league, rugby union thing, I think it's probably a little bit trickier. Um, but cricket still has that ability for us, for our players to go between them. And also, it's very, it's very rare to have a coach who can't coach both, right? You know, so most of the best T20 coaches in the world probably played first-class cricket. It's, it's, there are very few specialist T20 coaches. Maybe, I was trying to think, Samuel Badgery might be one, but he doesn't even do that much coaching. So I think that's part of the reason. Thanks for your questions, O'Kyle. Who have we got next? Nadika, are you there? Uh, my question is, you talked about how hard it is for top-level batsmen to become good at part-time bowling or for a bowler to be good at batting. How much can you make a bad fielder into a good fielder in both like close catching and outfielding like are you able to make anyone into a decent fielder or is is there like a talent limit so you could certainly make someone more athletic right you could certainly help with positioning now i'm trying to remember who this was it might have been i can't remember it might have been abhishek janjanwala was next to me on talk sport before broadcast one day and he was looking at a close in field i can't remember if it was new zealand or india and he was telling me the exact kind of catches he thought they would struggle with. And it was purely a technique thing. The person had their feet uh, in, the wrong, in the wrong way. So, and you see this with slip fielders a lot too. So a really good example of this is actually slip fielders. Most people who have studied this would say that if you field with your hands on your knees in the slips, you are probably going to be a worse slip fielder than if you have your hands already facing the bowler when you come in. But what batters specifically would tell you who field in the slips is, if you have your hands on your knees, it protects your back a little bit throughout the day. So we know that there are technical changes that fielders can make to make them slightly better. Um, you can certainly improve them. You, you know, there is a reason that Colin Bland, Andrew Simons, uh, John T. Rhodes, Martin Guptill, Ravaged Asia are brilliant outfielders and that's because they're brilliant athletes. So there's absolutely no, there's no question that India's fielding is better, that their team is a lot fitter than it was, you know, 20 or 15 years ago, even 10 years ago. So fitness levels certainly help, but at the end of it, I mean, I've been talking about this a lot. So Hayden Walsh and um, Fabian Allen are absolutely brilliant fielders when it comes to the athleticism and the way they move to the ball. And Martin Gupta was another one. But all three of those fielders, I don't think will get as many runouts as someone like Michael Clark or uh, Ravi Jadeja or Ricky Ponting because they were much better at having soft hands. And when the ball came to them, they didn't fumble it very much. And then all three of those guys were also fairly accurate with their throws. David Warner is a perfect example of David Warner just almost never, for the first half of his career, never hit the stumps right? So there is certainly a skill thing involved with that, that it is very hard not to um, de deal with. Sorry if everyone can hear my daughter screaming in the background. It seems she's been screaming for most of this podcast now. Um, so I think there are certainly skill aspects to it, but obviously general fitness. Also, how much you work at it. Um, the best fielding team in the world would like Papua New Guinea would not be that far away from the best fielding team in the world. I don't know if they would be the best fielding team in the world, but they would not be far away from that. And Papua New Guinea spend more time practicing their fielding than any other team I've ever watched um, in cricket. 
I don't think those two, I think they have great athletes, but I don't think it's a coincidence that they're also very skillful when it comes to fielding. Um, but I think there's a lot of technical things uh, that, that certainly need to be fixed and tweaked when it comes to fielding that I think sometimes, uh, to go back to your original point, like I, I, I had a school teacher years ago who played grade cricket in Sydney and he always said that we taught fielding incorrectly because we taught everyone the same basic fielding skills, but the slip fielder doesn't need to know most of the things that the point fielder needs to know and vice versa. <laughs> um, and I think that's probably still true to this day. I think a lot of fielding is still very generalist, especially at the junior levels. And that's not really, doesn't really help you at slip um, or it doesn't help you at short leg. Or I, I, for instance, I'm a terrible fielder at mid-off and mid-on because I never fielded at mid-off and mid-on my entire life. And um, later on, when I started playing for teams that already had good slip fielders, I, I would have to go in other positions. And I would, it was terrible at mid-off and mid-on because the, having the ball hit at you off the middle of your bat is absolutely nothing like fielding behind the wicket or fielding in a catching position. So I do think there's a lot of technical stuff. And I think that we're still a long way away from being able to fully train people in that. Although I do think cricket's obviously in a much better position now than it ever was before. Thanks for the question. Shramana. Yes, I am. Can you hear me? I can. What's your question? Yeah. So I basically went down a rabbit hole about Alan Finch, watching some old highlights or whatnot. His form is like 80, 70, 100, duck, 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 10, 500 again. Right. And I get that Smith is some kind of an all-time great there are other naturally talented Australian players like Warner. There's Maxwell, obviously. Yeah. But Finch has always been up there and doing his job quietly for like a long time. And yet he somehow just always from a fan's perspective or media perspective kind of fails to get a mention. Now you tell me he's either very good or very bad. He's made top level in his sport. He's very good or very bad. I don't know. You tell me. But what happens that he fails to get a mention? He's underrated or overrated. But why is he not rated at all sometimes? Uh, so there's a few things. I think one is that he opened with a player who's better than him. So you're linked to the player at the other end. And David Warner is a far more well-rounded player than Aaron Finch. I think that Aaron Finch has obviously had some great moments, but he probably hasn't had as consistent the amount of highs as some of the other great players that have come through. I think that he has technical flaws that most people within the press and, you know, commentary know. And, under uh, you know, he had a long, for a long time, he just was a walking edge. And then when he got over that, he became a bit of a walking bold and LBW candidate. Generally, that means that he's a bit more of a, what's the best way of putting it? A limited player, a very, very, very good limited player. Don't get me wrong, but a limited player. And I think those those come about. I think the other one is that he is a, a, a you know a double format player, but he's not a multi format player. Like he's not all three. So you you know the players that you've mentioned there, um, you're looking at uh, you know um, Maxwell has had success in Test cricket. Warner and Smith are going to go down as two of the best um, Test players that Australia have ever had. Finch played test cricket and didn't have any success. He really, really struggled. He didn't even have the success that someone like Maxwell did. Maxwell is, um, in some ways, even in white ball cricket, has a higher ceiling than Finch. But Finch is a really good player. But Australia's had a lot of better players around than him. And so if you if you look at that uh, 2019 World Cup side, you had Warner, Smith, um, 
Warner Smith, Maxwell, Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anyone in that. Um, Finch completely deserves to be mentioned in all those players, but the, all those other players are just slightly better. And so, but you get this all the way through history. One of the best ones um, uh, in, in history is, and I, I think I did something on him recently, so you'll be able to see him in one of my videos. Herbert Sutcliffe is an absolute gun, right? An absolute star, averaging 60s in Test cricket. But he happened to be in the same era. Well, his opening partner was Jack Hobbs, who made 197 first-class hundreds and basically was probably outside of WG Grace, the first great early batter for England and was still one of the greatest batters of all time. And then Herbert Sutcliffe played with Wally Hammond in the same era as Don Bradman, right? That's not to say that Herbert Sutcliffe isn't a fantastic cricketer, but sometimes the era that you're in defines you a little bit and the plays that you play define you a little bit. And I think that's what happened to Herbert Sutcliffe. Ken Barrington's another a player with an incredible record. And you see them all the way through history. We're talking about this. I just did a podcast with Adam Zwar about the 99 World Cup. And we barely mentioned Michael Bevan. Michael Bevan, in his time, was considered to be the best one-day player in the world. How often does Michael Bevan come up in conversation anymore? Right, And he doesn't because he wasn't a multi-format player and because other players went on to do even better than him. Uh, in yeah, Michael Bevan was great, but he happened to run into the era at which Gilchrist and Ricky Ponting came into the Australian team. And they were just better than Michael Bevan. Um, they were just absolutely fantastic cricketers who had a bigger impact on the game. So I think that a lot of it with Aaron Finch is that. Also, Aaron Finch has not sought out the limelight. Um, you know, incredibly humble, modest person. Uh, I, uh, you know, uh, no one ever says a bad word about him. Everyone really likes him. He doesn't market himself. He's not a brand. David Warner's a brand, right? And uh, Aaron Finch is not a brand. Yeah, my part was actually about that. Like, uh, again, from like a captaincy perspective. So he's a good player. As you say, he's a good player, but not the greatest compared to the others he plays with, which is okay. But then uh, from a captaincy perspective, after like sandpaper and all that, what happened there was now nowadays we we constantly have like Langer and Tim Payne. Never mind what happened with them. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying about like everyone kind of mentions like oh those two fixed Australian cricket, and you somehow again fail to mention Aaron Finch. But from mm. outside looking in, I don't know how anyone is. I obviously don't know anyone or how likable or anything anyone is. But from outside looking in, it always felt like if you're going to market your team to be this relatable. Uh, nice team, nice guys team. You should kind of focus on Aaron Finch than on the other guys, but that never happened. Well, there's a really bad timing thing. You were talking about how he he scores a lot of big runs and then he scores a lot of failures. I, I think they would have marketed him far bigger. In fact, I would say, because they, they don't forget, they already knew that Tim Payne had that skeleton in his, in his closet. I would, I'd be shocked if Aaron Finch had any skeletons in his closet. He just doesn't seem to be that sort of human. Also, universally liked. Tim Payne's not universally liked. I know lots of people who, who don't particularly like Tim Payne, not to say he's a bad person, but I just can't think of anyone who's ever really said anything particularly wrong about Aaron Finch. But at the time they were going to market him, he stopped making runs and he was on the verge of being dropped. And so I think they actually would have pushed him. And I think you're right. I think that, I think they used his good, good guy image a little bit, but two things happened. One was he was, he is a very, he, within Cricket Australia, he wasn't massively popular because he was a very strong voice in the players' union in that 2019 period when the players were going uh, went on strike. 
um, and he's very well respected by the players and those sorts of people weren't particularly popular with Cricket Australia and he went through a huge form dip and Australia didn't win the World, uh, win, didn't win the World Cup under him. Um, uh, you know, they haven't, been, they haven't had the success that, you know, that Tim Payne had had at times uh, during his reign. So I think a lot of it is to do with that. But also, Tim Payne went out. Uh, Tim Payne, while he was Australian captain, I cannot put say this enough. Tim Payne, while he was Australian captain, started his own radio show. I cannot imagine Aaron Finch ever doing something like that. So there's a big difference where Tim Payne would leak stuff to the press. He'd do Tim Payne would do all these at home with Tim Payne stories. Aaron Finch really doesn't want to do any of that sort of stuff. You can see during the um uh, the test documentary how uncomfortable he is with all that sort of stuff. So part of it does come back to that. Tim Payne marketed himself and Aaron Finch didn't. But a lot of what you said um, make, makes a lot of sense. But sometimes it's just wrong play at wrong time. Um, but but it's very interesting. But thanks so much for your questions. Thanks. All right, Jimmy, you there? What's your question? So thoughts on the New Zealand and South Africa test series starting tomorrow? <laughs> Uh, to be honest, Jimmy, I, I I'm on holiday at the moment, and I haven't looked at it that much. Other than I, you know, I I had a look, and New Zealand's not at full strength. So three players are missing, I think, and Williamson, yeah, and so, Ford, and uh... someone else isn't there. Yeah, I so I think that gives South Africa a really good chance. It's not quite Kane Williamson or Trent Bolt though, is he? Keegan Peters is still making his way in Test cricket. Um, I know he made some runs, but he's a, you know he's a... against India. I mean, no one is making any runs. He did. He did. That's it. But Keegan Peterson is what, 28, 29? You know, he he he's, might have a good career from here on in, but he's not Williamson or Bolt. There's a big difference there on the level of talent. So I think that probably gives South Africa a good chance. But obviously, New Zealand's a fantastic team, and there's a lot of players that, that South Africa have to get past to have success there. South Africa's bowling attack really excites me. I think it's a really good visiting attack mm. to, in any condition. To be fair, there are lots of good bowling attacks in the world, though. If you can't back that up with decent batting at the moment, it doesn't mean much. But I think I think South Africa's bowling attack right through all formats, all three formats, I think they have fantastic um, bowling options. Uh, you know, Simon Harmer coming through now as well. You know, they're just fantastic bowlers, but they've got to match them up with some better batters. Um, you know, Peterson and, and, and Rassi, I think they're both really, really talented players, but... They're not stars. They're probably the guys you want to be your fifth or sixth best batters. Um, and they might end up being, you know, the first or second or third best batters. And I think that's a huge problem for South Africa going forward. Thanks for your question. Who else have we got here? Let's see if Siddharth can come through. No worries. Siddharth, you there? You working now? Uh, yes, my question is about why the top of off stump is such a coveted position in our game. Like whenever you start mm-hmm. to bowl, whether you're a spinner or a foul bowler, especially foul bowlers, they are told to ball there. But, like, I've tried to do some research in this part, but I've not found anything in the bio, anything which tells that there's, uh, like, I know it's it's really important, but why is it important? Have you, do you know? Yeah. So, basically, if you're bowling at the top of our stump, you're keeping caught behind and caught in slips in play while you're keeping bold and LBW in play. Uh, there's also a physical reason as well. Uh, you know, the ball is slightly more outside your eye line at the top of off stump than it is at the top of middle stump or the top of leg stump. Also, uh, if you miss off stump, you still have a very good chance of being either hitting middle or leg. And if you miss off stump, you have a good chance of being in the channel just outside off stump. Uh, whereas if you miss middle stump, you're more chance of missing leg stump altogether and, and slipping down. So it works on a, what's that about three or four different reasons to begin with. Beautiful. Cheers, mate. And I will just try William 
Hear me. Yeah, I can. Last question, and you've earned this. <laughs> Random observation. I'm just watching the Pakistan Super League, and it's just extremely <laughs> entertaining. I sort of stumbled across it today, and I've just loved watching um, Mo Rizwan and Masood batting, and it's quite a good game as well. So I don't, don't know if you're keeping an eye on it, but it's, it's some good stuff. I, I haven't watched it much this year. It's, it's a brilliant league. Um, it, I think last year and the year before I was offered work. In fact, I think I was offered work again on it this year. Um, and every time it's fallen through. So if I'm not getting paid to watch a league, I probably just watch it when I have time. Um, but I would say it's by far and away the second best league in, in, um, in T20 circles. Now, I don't think there are many people left arguing against that. It's also a bowler league at times which is quite fun you know the IPL is certainly a batting league um so it's good to have another league that's really strong that's a bit more bowler dominated um but yeah I, I mean it's really good I like the way it's progressing uh I think that for Pakistan cricket you know considering the way the western teams can be a bit skittish and the politics within Pakistan I think it will if I think if they really invest in it and continue to grow in it, it's going to be a fantastic league. I think it's really well put together. Um, and, you know, its biggest problem is being the second biggest league, right? No one, you know, it's just not the biggest league. And that and that's what holds it back. And, and CPLs, I, I had a similar thing. Have you been over there for it? No, I, I, I've talked to owners and, and to people, I think, recently. I'm, I might have got another call about um, going over, but no one's ever offered me any work. I've actually never covered cricket in Pakistan, which is... Terrible because you know Pakistan's been you know one of my lifelong obsessions. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to go over, um, uh, but I've just never had the chance to go over there. So um, you know Pakistan, you know for me that was the. I think Pakistan's the reason I follow global cricket because they were the team outside Australia that I absolutely loved back in the day. So um, I would love to go over and do the PSL. I, I always wanted to go over. You know, you know for me, I usually only get offered jobs when it's sort of major teams touring. So I've always hoped that you know. Well, not India, sadly, but Australia or England would do a really big test tour of Pakistan, and I'd be able to go over uh, over there and cover it. But it doesn't even look like I'll be able to go over there um, and cover the, the the next one. But yeah, I mean, look, Pakistan's an absolutely, I, I think it's a fantastic country, and I'd love to get over there and cover the cricket. And I think the PSL, from a from a T Twenty standpoint, from a quality of cricket standpoint, and also now from a sort of an entertainment standpoint, it's really interesting because it is also. It and the IPL are almost different to almost every other T20 league. Um, you know, the CPL is great and the BPL um, and the Big Bash and even the 100, but it feels like there's like a more of a caravan there, whereas the Pakistani league and the um, Indian league are almost distinct on their own. So I think they're fantastic. And, yeah, I'd certainly love to go over there and, and cover some cricket. But, um, unfortunately, until someone pays my bills, William, I'm, I'm stuck uh, just going where uh, where the money is at the moment. Fair enough. Fingers crossed for someone to come get you over there. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks so much for your question. And thanks to everyone for their questions. We are working on obviously being able to do this in other places that, although to be fair, they're all a bit glitchy when it comes to this technology. The only one that really worked very well was Clubhouse, of course, which has completely died. So it doesn't really work for us anymore. But thanks to everyone who asked questions today and came on. If you come halfway through this podcast, you can also listen to this on the Red Inca. It goes up on the Saturdays. And we try and put as many of these episodes up at, on YouTube as we can as well. And huge thanks out to everyone there who's um, supported us, whether it be our sponsors like Manscaped. Red Inca gets you 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Uh, you go to Bodyline T-shirts. As I said on Instagram, they're putting up some uh, really good T-shirts at the moment or some newer T-shirts at the moment. Thanks to everyone who does buy me a coffee. And obviously this particular podcast would not exist without Patreon. So huge thanks to everyone who's helped us out on Patreon. And I'll see you next time here again. 
Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs>